and welcome to Three Wise DMs, the podcast where three dungeon masters who've been doing this for way too long talk about how you can be a better dungeon master and just do your best to put on great games. I'm Thorne, and I guess like my namesake from The Hobbit, I'm leaving this expedition, and I'm joined by... Tony. And Dave, I'm still continuing on. I have Sting, I'm with the Dwarven Party, we're approaching Mount Erebor, so I'm, my wisdom continues to increase for all you newbie DMs out there. I don't know, that's a self-promotion, I think it's a paddling noob. <laughs> I, I think you should have prefaced that with spoilers. <laughs> so, I didn't tell him what happens on Mount Erebor. So, guys, this is one of the, uh, the, the today's topic is a little bit different from things we've talked about in the past. Now, we've talked a lot about uh, how do DMs meet challenges, fix problems, deal with deal with problem players. Today, we want to talk a little bit about what makes it fun for you to be a dungeon master. And I think the background of this is a lot of what we see around the Dungeons and Dragons culture today is so focused on how can DMs be good DMs and how a DM can ruin a game if he's not or she's not that we lose sight of the fact that dungeon masters are players. So let's talk about, you know, what's fun for you? Maybe what interferes with that fun? And how do you try to keep yourself in it? And, uh, you know, what's what happens when it's not fun for you? How does it all break down? So let's start with um, what do you like? What's fun for you about being a dungeon master? And how about Dave? How about you kick us off since uh, you're the new guy here, as we've been discussing? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it is a, it's a long list, uh, but I think I can probably break it down to uh, player investment. Because um, I love prep. I love thinking about my game. I love, you know, putting my my prep notes together uh, and doing my research. But I love when that pays off because people are involved in the story. They remember things that are happening. They they go back and, and reference a clue or an NPC or something. Uh, and they're they're actively engaged in the process, you know, even if it's uh with, uh, you know, uh, in between games, messaging between, you know, oh, I want my character to do this or he's going and doing that. Like Thorne, we're doing currently right now in the Straub game where your uh, sprite familiar has gone off, right? Uh, uh, chasing after the, the hags and, uh, you know, doing a little bit of a side thing with that. And then some other side things I have going with some of the other players and getting that back and forth. That's what I really love. And that that makes the game fun for me. Yeah, it's, it's some of the good stuff, definitely. What about you, Tony? What uh, what makes it fun for you? Well, I certainly appreciate it when the players are staying with all the beats and they're remembering uh, what's happening in between games. Um, I think a, a kind of an energy sucking moment in your game can be, or I turn to the players and say, "Hey, okay, say guys, where did we leave off last game?" And there's a moment of crickets, and it's like, <laughs> "Oh man, oh <laughs> right." But in all seriousness, uh, I really appreciate what gives me energy and what I really enjoy from the game is when uh, the players discuss memorable moments from previous games in that campaign. Yeah. Uh, and and that's that's really a wide net. Um, however, you know, what I actually really like is having a successful game. Now, this kind of begs the question, uh, can you have a uh, successful game or a game that is um, perhaps unsuccessful but is still fun like perhaps it went off the rails of your story mm -hmm. um you know uh something really catastrophic happened to your core plot my short answer is if it was still fun yes you can 
Yeah. It, you know, it's funny because you've mentioned before, like how some of these games you remember very negatively that you think of as though they were failed. On the other hand, the first thing you mentioned was the stories the players tell about them. And some of the things you count as failures are the ones that your players still talk about to this day. <laughs> so, well, many of which we have recapped in this, uh, in this podcast. <laughs> we recapped several that Tony said, that was terrible. And Thorne goes, no, it was the best. Yeah, no, I mean, I've been in TPK situations that have been super memorable. And I've had situations where players have jumped three chapters ahead of the story. Like everything completely would get derailed because something unexpected would happen. And yeah, if it's still fun and everyone is enjoying themselves, both the players and the DM, it's a success. And that's one of my driving factors as for running a game. You know, for me, I guess what I like about the game is getting together uh, to hang out with a group of friends. Um, usually it's existing friends, you know, or, although, or, or it'll be new friends who I want to bring into something and teach the game to. And I really do enjoy that aspect of we're all hanging out and doing something and we're all kind of invested in it and we're all having, and we're all, we're all, we're all putting in equal effort and we all want this to be fun and everyone's buying in and buying into their characters and thinking really using their heads, you know, cause I mean, as we talked about, I'm not such a big fan of a game where the players approach it. Like you know, like their characters in the video game that I'm running. Uh, I really like it when players come together and they're, they're in their characters and they have their own plots and they're thinking laterally and it's alive, you know, and it's then we're really improv. It's that kind of that, that improv sense of life that you have from a good D&D game, I think. Um, one of the things that for me always makes it fun, I was having this conversation online uh, the, uh, the other day, actually, and it's, you know, some people really kind of treat D&D as just like your powers, what you can do is justified by the rules in the book, like the rules as written. And to me, D&D is always most fun when people are thinking about, OK, but what about the physical world around those rules? Like I'm a DM who definitely thinks if you levitate, you, know, you might be off the ground, but that means there's no friction. Or, or little friction because you're no longer touching the ground, which lets players do cool things with levitator. Let's me do cool things with levitate as a, as a DM, you know? So I, I like a nice kind of like to use the rules and we all understand the rules as kind of the, the, the backdrop in the, in the, in the core system. But then it's one players go beyond those rules and start playing with the world. That's the part I think is some of the most fun stuff. And yeah, just the, uh, I'm not really concerned with, is it going to be a successful campaign? I'm not concerned with am I going to get to tell my story out. I really love when you have a group of players who are just excited to come in and ad lib with you and, 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 and work with you and work with their characters in that way where they're in the world and they're going to think critically about it. They're going to they're going to have fun with it. They're going to ad lib with it. They're going to improv. They're going to do things you're not expecting. And you know, the best for me, one of the best moments is when you can set up a situation, you know, the players are about to walk into a combat encounter. They can see what's coming. They're coming up with a plan or coming up with how they're going to storm this castle or, or, or maybe not storm, maybe infiltrate. You know, you set up, here's what you're looking at. And the players talk to themselves and start figuring out what are they going to do? And they get into it. And then I often leave the table <laughs> and just let them talk for a minute to figure out what they're going to do. And that to me is some of the best stuff as a dungeon master. Great now, that's... time for a pee break is that for you when they're <laughs> discussing what, what to do. Cause you, you have at least enough time. It's like when the old DJs would put on a uh, Don McLean's American pie and that was their time to go pee and grab a cup of coffee. I yeah. will say Thorne, you said something interesting and I thought it was, uh, it was, it was telling too, because I, I I didn't even think about it because it was almost like um, it was assumed. But you were saying when 
a bunch of people gather around the table, you know, or these days gather around a, a Zoom call, whatever, right? But the idea of that communal hmm. coming together and and investing into this thing that we're doing, you know, I said the other night to somebody, uh, to Bonnie, actually, I said, uh, you know, yeah, I could spend, you know, four hours watching TV, or I could spend four hours making TV in a way, you know, and it's that, yeah. it's that communal story building thing. Uh, so I think I well, felt in between you and Tone where it's not so much, oh, I have to tell this specific thing. But what I was saying is that player investment to give me that push to, okay, now we can really expand this world because everyone has said, yeah, I want to I see where this goes. I want to see how this drives. So with that, on your point, uh, there's a bit of DM investment. So it, I've taken my time. I've looked at where all the players are doing. I've put together the details of the world. I put my counters together. I know what treasure I'm giving out. And amazingly, I want this to go off. I'm not talking like the whole campaign going off in this fantastic manner. I want today to go off fantastically. <laughs> we all, you know, I want everybody to get together. We're, we're going to be here for six hours, seven, eight hours. I'm going to leave and be like, yeah, I'm glad we did that. That's one of my driving factors. Absolutely. Absolutely. To, to, to not have everyone go like, okay, cool. I think you said it in one of the other episodes, Tony, the, the, you know, don't tell me, don't just nod at me after the game. Oh yeah, it was really cool. Okay. See you next time. Like, give me something. Like, <laughs> even if it's like, dude, that sucked. Like I want something more. Cause then I, you know, then my, my investment uh, in it, uh, can, can be improved. Right. I, I've, de I've DM some modules that were bombed. I mean, honestly, God, like some, like some modules you do, they're like they're super memorable. People are talking about them ten years later, and I've run some modules that, as I'm doing this, I'm like, what were they thinking when they put this together? <laughs> and this is like this re the quote, the angry video game nerd. And um, yeah, th these were really uh, Wizards or TSR products. This isn't like something like I pulled off of somebody's website. And as like, it was playing out, I'm like, wow, yeah. But the good news with that is. It's one mod, like we're right, doing, and but like from King's Thunder, like we're in it now, like. And that's kind of, that's one of the great. Th I mean, it's one of the things that I think has has uh, Thorin. I think you shared this the other day on Facebook, but the somebody had put out a a, a post that was saying, you know, in case anybody's uh, counting, Watsi has now been producing D and D longer than TSR ever did. And when you really break it down, you're like, holy shit, they have, you know. And TSR was massive, right? They had. I don't think you can count how many modules they had, right? They were endless. Um, and then all the third-party stuff. But Watsi Well, there was has... less third-party stuff under TSR. That was the difference. Okay. TSR, okay. TSR, TSR and the, oh, didn't embrace the... I don't know if they ever embraced the uh, the, the, the open-source idea that were well, that, I that Watsi... Even, I don't think it had even come up, yeah. at, or at least, that yeah, they didn't take it. But my point was is that, like, Watsi now, you get that... You know, they do the one book a year kind of thing, you know, so they'll do Storm King's Thunder and then here have that. So they spend a ton of time crafting this one thing instead of, oh, here's a here's a random module that doesn't really go with anything, you know. True, true. Yeah. And I think, you know, when it comes down to the modules, you know, they're always it's, it's always interesting to me because it's nice because it's all right there. But, you know, we do get in that little bit of different play style where if I want my players to ad lib and they're walking off the module, I'm suddenly right back in the land of I don't have a module. 
I know I will I still will disagree with you on that though because running the the not I mean I'm not saying like you know uh running you know Village of Hamlet or something or you know Expedition at the Barrier Peaks like that's going to be this is the adventure you know up to the point where they literally start it and go okay you're in front of a temple go in right <laughs> there's no lead time there's no foreplay um but these the 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 I, I don't even like calling them modules these these whatever these adventure paths um supplements so whatever like storm kings and strahd and tomb of Nile, these things are so massive they're all they're almost a campaign setting so it's I, I would actually really like to see Thorin run one of them because of the amount of world that's there. And then what do you want to do? Because there's something that's happening and you can still uh, you can still play with it. You know, it, they, they definitely pushed away from the old school uh, module format, you know, and some of the tournament play stuff. Well, the thing is, when I come into a game and like in this code, this come, this is about what I enjoy as a DM. So we've talked about we've talked a little bit about my prep and how it's my prep tends to be more. I know what level my players are. I know what they're doing. Um, I know kind of what they want to try to do, or maybe I know where they're heading. Often I do know where they're heading because we talked about it at the end of the last session. Sometimes I show up and the players are like, yeah, we're going to stop it and explore this tree. And then we get to the next session and we go, no, we got to push on. So <laughs> yeah, and you, this yeah. happened recently I, in a game, and I spent a t I spent like two hours before the game setting up tree you know tree adventure maps of them exploring this giant elven tree village, and then I the players. <laughs> I wanted to go into I was like, no, we told him we're going to the tree. What the hell is going on? <laughs> I have like seven unused maps in my Roll20 account from that adventure. Um, so sometimes I do know. But what I tend to – actually, what I like, I, I do like playing with the monsters. The monsters are sort of like my toy, my characters in the campaign world. And the same thing sort of goes with doling out magic items, which is less of a big deal in 5th edition. Playing with traps, playing with features, playing with, you know – I usually uh, wind up kind of ad-libbing terrain features or something to interact as part of encounters. But so that is something where I'll tend to look through, uh, I will tend to look through the monster manual around the CR where I want to be for what the party is and kind of in the area they are and go, like, okay, so what works and what doesn't for this or for where they might go. And then I'll make up a short list. This might be anywhere from five to 10 creatures long of things I want to work in depending on the theme, yeah. depending on what's going on. And I won't get them all in, but it'll give me a list of, okay, so they went here, they're doing that. That means I'm going to go to this thing. And I just open up the book to that page. Sometimes I'll actually kind of have like markers on the pages or I'll use like paper clips to mark the pages. But that to me is fun because I do enjoy picking out monsters that look interesting to me and engaging in the combats with them and seeing how they do and how the players interact with them. I mean, yeah, generally the player, the players are going to beat that monster in the end, but it's a matter of what kind of challenges the monster present. And I do enjoy that. Like I enjoyed bringing the invisible stalker to the, to the party Tony was, was in. Um, Cause they hadn't run into one. We hadn't played with it with invisibility at all at that point in that game. So getting to play with this kind of cool new mechanic and engage the players with it and kind of have them throw ideas at it as far as how, they're going to deal with it which wound up being the classic throw oil on it and set it on fire uh which we decide it worked i don't know if raw says it works but it works i think that'll do game. it i think that'll mm -hmm. do it because that is part of what i enjoy and it is part of what i lose when i'm dealing with a module because in a module it's there's nothing you know it's all what the module maker picked 
for that logic or whatever the module maker wanted to do. It's not me saying, okay, cool. I get to play with this thing today, you know, and that's, so, so, but so Tony, you you had the Thorn DMU too, and with the new style that Watsi has, with like some of the things that we're running, what do you think? Because I still think that if he cracked one of those books and got into it, I think it would it would be interesting to see. I would I I'm mainly saying this spoilers by the way, guys, because I've now been playing in Storm Kings and Curse of Strahd. My plan is now to play through every single. Uh, Watsy published adventure that they put out because I just want to see them because they're super fun so far. So <laughs> and we're talking about what makes it fun. But I really, Tony, what do you think? You know, having seen some of what they put out now and Thorin's style. Well, you're absolutely right. There's a ton of material. Like these guys are not screwing around. And, you know, if we talk about Roll20, where you're really could go into every building and look in every place. And that that's really was pretty unheard of previously. Now, I've run into encounters in there that I'm like, mm, I don't want to do this. Flat out. Like, mm -hmm. I do not want to do this encounter. Yeah. So, time for something else. You gave me this amount of maps. Guess what I'm doing? Adding maps. Here we go. Time to start dropping more maps, more encounters. Like, there was uh, a scene which I never got into uh, previously when you were uh, dealing with uh, spoilers, the, the frost giant attack in the one city. And I'm like, uh, the way they handled that, I didn't like it at all. So would you be changing things? I don't know. It depends upon your environment, honestly. You, you know, might get bored with something or just think it doesn't work. I'd it's funny because, yeah, Dave, between the lines, I can tell Tony's actually made a lot of adjustments to Storm King's Thunder. Oh, I know he has. Yeah, I and, like, has. and I, I can tell yeah. part of it is that he isn't, as jazz with the way they've set some of their things up um is that fair to say tony that's very fair to say there was a scenario i'm not going to get into the details in case someone's playing it but they're like you're going to do this with your players when you get into the city and i'm like i am not going to do that at all just take that that's a clusterfuck it was just waiting <laughs> to happen maybe somebody else ran this and it was great and they loved it cool I just saw it as an absolute bogged down nightmare. There was already so much happening that that was like the straw that was going to break the camel's back. And I'm like, no, off the table. Forget it. Like something else. You know, it's time to make adjustments. And oh, I yeah, encourage dude. all the players, you know, to make adjustments as you need. It's a, it's a published thing. It's great. It's there to help you. And if yeah. you don't like it, hey, you paid. For it. So, Dave. No, it's it's true. It's 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 much like the rest of uh of D, D and any other rpg is here's here's ideas use them how you want i mean we we were talking about this just last time or what was it last day? i don't know all these ones start running together but you know we're talking about you know people who uh i i i said it in my article about people who kind of scoff if you're not quote home brewing you know and i'm like meanwhile what we mean by homebrew is a large umbrella because you're talking about, are you using the monster manual? Oh, you're using the monster manual. Oh, so you're taking things and then you're adjusting them. Oh, okay. But that's cool because you're doing it. Uh, oh, you're using the DMG for some magic items. Oh, you also have a hammer of thunderbolts in your world. Oh, that's so ironic because it's in every fucking world. Right. <laughs> so it's, it's more about this idea of like, it's, it's almost this badge that like, oh my God, if you use this published stuff, then you're, you know, and I just, for me, I do a lot of homebrew stuff. I also have now started the published stuff and I'm just really, I, I was just talking to Chris, my brother, about it today, the other day. I'm very jazzed about this stuff. It just, 
I don't know. I dig them. I, I think it's part of the tradition of D&D, too. You know, the modules you used to remember as a kid, you know, like everyone wants to run through against the giants. You know, everyone wants to run through Tomb of Horrors, you know. They, there is an aspect to that. I think it's some of the, some of the romanticization similar. of it, you know. There is an aspect to that where definitely I know there is like I know Tony ran us through Bloodstone once upon a time. And that was very much, oh, it's a great module. We got to go through it. And it was fun. It was like that was like going to see a classic movie. And which yeah. is there's yeah. that element to it. On the flip side, though, I actually feel like there's a lot more pushback these days to the idea of homebrew. There's a lot more players, a lot more of the community online that will talk negatively about playing in a DM's homebrew campaign versus something out of the book. And um, there's a certain segment of the community that like, so that doesn't want homebrew. They want raw. And if there's not raw, they think the DM's going to basically be out to get them or is just the okay. DM's going to be doing going right. on a power trip. Right. I right. don't see as much encouragement of homebrew these days. Uh, whereas definitely in second edition, there was that element of, you know, yeah, but it's got to be your own thing, you know. Now, for me, though, and now the reason I prefer homebrew to the box stuff is, like I said, I like to select my things. I like to – that's what I'm playing with. And I've said this before. The characters are yours. The characters are the players. They're totally – they can do whatever they want with them. I'm going to embrace it and give them the – get in, in, and run a world that lets them do what they want to do, even while the world is doing its own thing. Because the world is mine. <laughs> the world is my character and that's what I'm playing with. So like, so that's part of, you know, I'm not there to tell a story necessarily. I'm there to have this kind of fun uh, improv experience with the players, with the rules, with the encounters. And it is still D it's D and D. Like, I mean, there's nothing that's not D and D about what I'm doing. It's not that. Oh, God, no. yeah. But you know, it's okay. So you're doing this and here, how about I throw this at you? Oh, cool. You did that. You know, that's what I enjoy about it. And when I'm going out of the book, which I have done before, I've done module, I've done module stuff before. Instead of that, my experience winds up being, oh, I got to remember what the module says to do here, which takes all the fun out of it for me. Cause that's now I'm not working off my ad living. Now right, I'm working right. off what the module says to do. I've got to memorize the module um, or I got to be searching, flipping through the pages. It's also led to big problems. We did a call Cthulhu module once where I missed a piece of text that was supposed to be the guy that we're running up on who had a shotgun was supposed to engage the party with dialogue that I forgot to read. One of the, one of the characters runs up to him and he shoots him in the face with a shotgun, which in Call <laughs> Cthulhu, you don't get up from. You're dead. Yeah. It's like being shot Poor with a shotgun. Poor In real life. Yeah. That was tragic. And, and the thing was, I felt bad. So now it became a situation where this didn't work. That character died. Uh, the game didn't run great. And the reason the game didn't run great is because I didn't spend enough time studying the module ahead of time. Which makes it like schoolwork, which makes it like work work. And I think part of this, and some place I want to take this discussion is, to what extent does the DM need to be taking a work approach to being a dungeon master versus being a player? Because a lot of what we're talking about assumes the DM's going to know all the rules, assumes the DM's going to take care of managing everything, assumes the DM's going to make sure everyone has fun. I don't think that's all the DM's job. Now, what do you oh, guys me think? Neither. Me neither. No, not at all. Not at all. So does it does but but when you're running the mods and stuff because you got to prep the mod you got to have the mod ready doesn't that feel a bit like work? Not for me, mm. but I I said this uh, one other time too. I love D and D homework. Um, that's me. <laughs> I I read the books. I I read the monster manual from front to back. I read the DMG from right. I read. Fourth edition, never played fourth edition. I read the DMG though, just because I like reading about lore and shit, right? Um, so for me, what it does is it it's um, it's starter fluid for me, for the blaze. Like 
for my imagination because I've already adjusted things within Barovia, for instance, yeah. for you guys. Because what happened was, well, Phineas's character has certain things that's going to affect the world. You know, Hawk's character, Little One, Sir Scar, right? All of these different characters have backstory and plans that I tie in to the story that has nothing to do with the way they wrote it. Mm -hmm. But I've also seen other people, including uh, Perkins, that just change it. They go, no, it's going to be this instead. But for me, it's it's uh, it's like getting a Duralog, you know, like I can sit and build a fire in our fireplace. I can also get a Duraflame and boom. And then I build a beautiful fire. And I can, yeah, really, and then I can sit back with my wine and enjoy it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you see, I'm over there shooting fire from my fingertips. At least that's yeah. how I see it. <laughs> Maybe the players don't see it that way. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they do. Uh, but that's that's kind of more my approach is, well, there we go. Okay, now now we have a, now we have a turtle druid emerging from the forest. What happens? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you think, Tony? I mean, how, do you enjoy the modules more or do you enjoy homebrewing more? Uh, I definitely enjoy homebrewing more, to be perfectly honest. That's based on my career. Um, if we were playing a tournament-style environment, they'd be like, okay, we got to really keep this by the book. I'm taking my tournament, you know, specific character, and it, everything's lined up. That's fantastic. I mean, as far as, uh, you know, shaping your role with your players, I enjoy uh, encouraging the creativity. It's well, You talk about things that you like to see coming in. Um, honestly, some of the best scenarios as a DM is when – you can strike gold and find a character that really a player that that has an idea where this character is now super interesting and ideally not saying overpowered. They don't need to be an overpowered character. That's that maybe they've got a good edge on them or they're maybe they're very effective, but you've got a character in your hands now who is again super memorable and they're just driving their own dialogue. Yeah. That's fantastic. You like to ad lib a lot. All of a sudden, you've got this character just going off, and they're doing their thing. And now it's very clear, like, okay, you know what? Well, what's going on? We're gonna go right to this windmill. All right, is that smart? Who cares? There it is. And <laughs> you can sit back and just enjoy the show as the DM at that point, versus you're leading them around by their nose because yeah. you've got. I really very much, I very much did enjoy when you guys went into the old windmill. Yeah, so you're correct. I did sit back and enjoy that. <laughs> I think we put on a show. We put on quite a show in the. We put on quite a show. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, the, the 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 what were we fifth level characters barging into the uh, barging well, into the counter. Just walked into a confectioner shop and decided to just start smashing <laughs> cases. But we knew there was something up with those green cakes. Uh, but what I what I so you know I, I I like this kind of thread that we're on here. Uh, but um, back to Thorne, what you were saying, too, is and you have said this of your own accord, too. And I, I'll, I in terms of homebrew. So in terms of creating our entire world. Right. Uh, and all of the people that inhabit it and all of the kingdoms and all of the politics. Right. <clears throat> and we're talking about D&D homework for me. That turns into and it's why I do a lot of what I call kit bashing. Right. Because I to to properly build the world that. I want a DM that I want my players to interact with. I'm building out a lot of stuff because you have said, Thorne, that like, you know, one of the weaknesses that you have found in, in the way you kind of come about it is some of your NPCs start to become a little bit one dimensional or a little weak where I attempt to try to make these NPCs that really interact with the characters and 
you know, might become uh, large foils within the story, even if they're not planned to be so. Um, so I'm, in essence, having to build that out when I'm building a town, building a city, building a kingdom, right? All of these things. Like, I put a lot of thought into that. So if I was prepping all of that, which I have been doing for Slaver's Bay, if I didn't kit bash a little bit of it, that's a lot of building to, to have everything that I want to have for my style of, of DMing. I find, and here's the tricky part, because, you know, and I think, I think we got to talk about the elephant in the room here, which is we're all, you know, older. We all have demanding jobs. We all have other things going on. We're all very busy. Because mm. um, when I sit down, like when I actually sat down and invented the world that the Woodstock Wanderers are in, I just started writing and everything flowed immediately just went, it took, it took me a couple hours you know i mean writing out as far as because the woodstock town is actually pretty detailed we just haven't been back there in the entire campaign oh no that was yeah you, but you we left the game a lot of shops so. but it is it is hard to do that um now one of the tricks to that is that you know i did put you guys in basically a in, a, in an immense forest where everything's a ruin so there's not much to detail in the forest although we've hit some um but it is, uh, you know, when I sit down and I give myself the time, it is actually easier for me to create the stuff and write it down myself than to remember what someone else wrote in a book. That's it's fair. the trick is a lot of the time with my schedule. I and mean, I think now we're talking about adult gaming. You know, this is, you know, you're, you're, you're in your 40s, you got responsibilities and you're trying to squeeze your games in. It's sometimes hard for me to find that two or three hours to just write up a bunch of stuff. So instead, you know, I read some books, which is a little more like browsing the internet. Um, but, I mean, honestly, books. But it's got that feel. It's like, okay, yeah, let's, let's find some cool monsters, find some cool magic items, throw that in there, see what they do with that. So, you know, I don't know that I actually, when I have done module stuff, I have not saved time. So that, that's, that's been, you know, that's, that's, that's been my experience with it. And that's part of why I do it that way. So what do you think, Tony? Well, I think it's really a double-edged sword. Because you could find yourself, okay, I don't want to go through this module, dig through all this stuff, and then maybe I find out I don't like it, or there's homework, and it doesn't feel like it's yours. It doesn't feel like you don't have your hands on it. You have to go and dig through it to find all these facts, and you're like, oh, crap, I missed the flavor text. When you have a book module, you're trying to find all the beats in the material, and that's definitely more difficult because it's not – you wrote it. This, this You've got your, your names on it. It's fresh in your mind. It feels very genuine and native to you. However, I've been in situations where I'm drawing up a whole freaking town and <laughs> yeah. that could just go down a rabbit hole. It's like, what's in this house? What's going on with these guys? Does this person have a secret? Is this person an assassin? Is this guy working in the black market? Is this a retired knight? You know, all this stuff. And it's like, well, okay, <laughs> holy shit. I've been writing for eight hours on this town. Can we get to the module? Like how long is my players even to be in this town? You know. So, you know, Tony, I wanted to ask you a question before from your last thread. You mentioned that you prefer homebrew to using book modules. Yeah. But really, the last several times I've gamed with you, well, this current time, I've played a lot of modules with you. So why mm -hmm. is that? Is that why you pick modules usually over the homebrew, even though you enjoy homebrew better? Um, some modules I've come across over my career have been truly amazing. Like mm -hmm. the stuff in there, like Dungeons of Greyhawk. Uh, Bloodstone, Nightmare Keep, modules like that Tomb of Horrors, even the remake of Tomb of Horrors that did in 4th edition, really knocked it out of the park. However, you know, for those in-between things, you got to come up with your material, especially if you have impromptu yeah. games 
And um, sometimes it's 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 not that hard to whip up, you know, a town, have some guys go through that. But you have to find that balance. You have to find that you're not going to invest too much time in places you don't need your players to be. Yeah, to me, that's one of the biggest tricks to it, because uh-huh. even though I wrote up the Woodstock Village in a way that did, I hit a lot of things. I didn't put a ton of detail into anything because... This does come back too to my NPCs, like you were mentioning, Dave. I've mentioned, I've mentioned, some of my NPCs can fall flat. I don't want to spend a ton of time with anyone but the most important NPCs because I would rather the players have the spotlight than the NPCs have the spotlight. Now, there's a balance to this, and I often think I do come a little short on the NPC side because I'm ad-libbing and because because just because of the way I'm approaching it. But like even in the Woodstock game, you know, there are several NPCs which do have some depth. You know, there's uh there's Brother Maynard, the Absolutely. The, the, the traitor paladin. There is the snakes of the Mal- uh, uh, the snakes of the Alakir, the Malbion who runs them. There's depth in those things. Um, there's some depth in the backstory. There's uh, not a lot of character depth, but a lot of the a lot of, a lot of the people who would be in it are dead. So you know, but part of it is that I only flesh out a few very important things that I think the players will remember, and I try very hard not to spend any time on things I don't think the players are going to remember. A perfect, yeah, and also like I was uh, just as a segue to this, uh, you know, because we're always trying to get some sort of actionable uh, advice for it. So regardless of homebrew or module or whatever you're doing, uh, go the lazy dungeon master route. Only prep for the next <laughs> session. Only you don't have to prep the whole world every single time. Yeah. Just prep the next session. You know, just prep the next town they're getting to and a couple encounters and that type of stuff. And then let it build from there. But like yeah. what you were saying with the NPCs, um, one of the things I enjoy, which is a, a way of getting that, that what you like to do, which is kind of throw it back to them and what do you want to do mm-hmm. and how do you interact with this is – when I start throwing out NPCs, including ones that I think are throwaways, they all of a sudden become the person that the party needs to, oh, well, we need to hire this person and we need to take them along and we need to well, we need to go back and check with them first because they were, you know, meanwhile, it was this no, no nonsense character that I had, right? Um, but it becomes something that now the party, oh, well, we, we, we want to talk to that guy, you know? I think there was an enchanter in slaver's bay that that you didn't mean to be important who turned important um i'm possibly i'm not <laughs> sure uh, there the guy were, with the trees the, the the guy with the with the uh, elven trees oh <laughs> no he was pretty important uh it was more the it was funny because it's the way that people uh the way the players the psychology right the way the players interact you already know what this person is but the way they interact completely changes it you're like Oh shit! They're gonna like try to like storm this dude's house. They're gonna try to light him up. They think he's a necromancer. Who the hell knows what's going on, right? And, like, it, it, we gotta add some context here. The context here is that in 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 the game, Dave's DMing uh, where we were slaves, which you've heard about in previous episodes. Uh, we go to a we go to a town. We got to do a job in the town. Uh, there's a lot of like monsters and stuff, like a lot of mysteries around the town of like these monsters are coming from here. There's troglodytes coming from there. There's an evil empire who's taken over and they're installing things. And you don't know exactly what is what or why it's happening. So yes. there is in the middle of town, a grove of magic tr- trees, elven stock magic trees, an enchanter that lives there. And he's just surly. He doesn't want to talk to us, which of yeah, course. He was a complete made, dick. He yeah, was a complete made, dick. 
which meant we weren't leaving until we talked to him. And, you know, uh, one of the players familiars, well, not familiar, one of the players had a pet mouse from the one background that got killed by what is effectively a whomping willow. Uh, poor squeaky mouse. Uh, yeah. He's still pretty sour about that. I haven't seen Rob in a little he while, is. but he's we have, pretty yeah. salty about it. Yeah. We haven't played since last year, and he's still salty about this. Yeah, it's a... <laughs> I remember one time I had a completely random NPC where one of my players, it was actually an evil campaign. I think mm. we're in Mole Master or something to that effect. And she starts, she's like, I want to, I want to see what's going on with my neighbors. Okay. So she had a crazy wizard na- neighbor. I just threw this guy in there. <laughs> Next thing I know, like 10 games later, they keep coming back to this guy. They, like they tried to, to rob him at one point. He threw the, you know, he disposed of the one character then he turned him into a frog. Next thing I know, like three more games later, he's teaching the thief how to play the violin. I'm like, how did we get here? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You never know. You never know who they're going to get. So I love fleshing out uh, characters like that. But again, that's one of the problems I'm going to have if uh, when I do have to build the whole world, you know, which I do at times. But and I love that. But you know, you know. I'm going to come back, though. So we've talked about how I, I prefer not to play modules. That is a little bit overstated because while I prefer not to play modules, I have in the past used box sets and campaign settings. And I understand, Dave, part of your point is that's what my Storm King's Thunder is half campaign setting, but it's also a lot of yeah. adventures and encounters. Oh, yeah, sure, sure. And the adventures and encounters are what I want to handle. But my first, the first time I gamed, the first campaign world I ran, and this went great. This, this campaign ran all the way up to level 20. Tony wound up in it later on. Um, Actually, what I had, the only thing I had to work with was the core second edition books and the Greyhawk, the City of Greyhawk box set. Mm. So the players started off in the City of Greyhawk, and I studied that. And that actually, that like the Village of Hamlet, did have like all of my local color. It had different sectors of the city, it had the NPCs were, were, were described and statted out. So it did give me this thing that where they were, I could always just reference something and go. And then it gave me a map and like some hints of this thing's out that way, that thing's out this way. And it did give you a bit of a surrounding area map. But everything in the surrounding area, pretty much, so pretty much the party started in the city of Greyhawk. And I just said, here's these different things around. They decided where they wanted to go encounter. And then I filled in all that ad lib. And that's still kind of how I go. But at the same time, you know, it does bring up a good point that even then having that city to build around was really handy. That's why I'm actually looking at the Eberron book right now, and I'm, I'd like to do an Eberron campaign, but Eberron is half Gazetteer. So it's half just here's what's going on in the world. Take it and do what you want with it. And that does seem interesting because then, you know, I can still play with any monsters I want to play with. I can play with any encounters I want to play with. I can play with any dungeon features I want to play with. Yeah. You always can, but I mean, it's still mine to play with. But then at least I have a framework in kind of a world that I'm kind of with some NPCs and stuff that I can pop in where I need to, uh, yeah. which is yeah. handy. I think even if you're a very ad lib heavy DM, sometimes having a city in a box is a great place to start. Oh, absolutely. Some... Reskin stuff. Reskin it. It's out there. You got 50 years worth of stuff. You mm. know, use it. Why not? <laughs> yeah, right I about used, 50 years. I used Greyhawk very extensively back in the day, and uh, it was a fantastic campaign setting and became a great base of operation. Of course, same drill. There was some stuff in there I really liked and some stuff I'm like, nah, we're not going to even freaking deal with. Yeah. But as they were exploring all these different dungeons and they were adventuring, you know, over the the uh, the kingdom itself, they always had a 
flavorful place to come back to. Like the guys who have been in there, um, they were improving their status. Some of them were involved in the Wizards Guild. <laughs> yeah, setting up shop. I wish they would bring yeah. back Greyhawk, to be honest with you. A lot it's of kind of like a generic fantasy setting. But it kind of got bumped by the Forgotten Realms as a generic fantasy setting. But I always liked Greyhawk a bit better. Like, Forgotten Realms is a little bit... It's better in the overworld, but there's not a lot of great Forgotten Realms cities that I could just rattle off off the top of my head. Yeah. you're talking, like, Spine of the World. Okay, you have the Ten Towns up in that world. But, I mean, that's very specific. And you have to like snow and mountains. Yeah. And plus to me, and this is a little t- this this is this is a little bit of a hair of hair splitting. I like my worlds to be charming and magical, but also a little more grounded in realism. Whereas Forgotten Realms is heavily magical. You know, it's like floating mountains magical. I don't like a lot of floating mountains. Like if there's a floating mountain, I want there to be one floating mountain, and there's a very good reason for it. Like it's an invading, an extra-dimensional invader. I don't want my world so magical that mountains are floating and everyone's imbued with some kind of magic ability. I'd rather my world be a little more down to earth, give the players a little more grounding. And that's always been my style. Um, Like I would actually love to do a Celtic world uh, campaign where you're looking at a low magic world. Now, maybe the players still have access to magic, but the rest of the world probably doesn't. Like you're probably not running into wizards or priests because I find that interesting of, okay, your, your warriors got to worry about their swords and getting armor and rust. And we're actually down and dirty and it's not all magic and teleporting because honestly, teleporting gets boring to me. I, uh, I, I, I'm right with you. I would love to see a campaign. I, I would like to run one too uh, with low magic, uh, sometimes mm-hmm. ultra low magic. I was just reading a little bit of the, I have to share it with you guys, too, but I grabbed uh, from the Humble Bundle the uh, Adventures in Middle-Earth supplement that they did where they yeah. uh, they did it for 5e. Um, and I just – even classes, their classes, which are, are named – there's no magic classes because, right, the uh, – what were they? The uh, uh, – whatever the hell Gandalf really was. Oh, uh, um, the angel. They're like angels, right? Yeah. I don't know the name. I what the name. But yeah, there's I no, I'm forgetting the name. <laughs> like the elves have some magic, right? But it's it's magic, it's ritual magic, it's it's stuff like where you're gathering herbs, you know? Yeah. The mire, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but you're gathering herbs and things like that. So it's very martial classes and things like that. And it'd be interesting, even though we all love slinging spells and all that, it would be interesting because it would remove a lot of the uh the easy fallbacks, like, oh, Ray's dead, done. Well, you're not getting away from that. (laughs) No, but making it it harder, right? Making it harder to accomplish, you know? But you'd have to have the right people for that. That's a really serious problem because not not even getting rid of it because, I mean, raising the dead in some of these additions is like, I don't know, getting surgery now. And I I am a very firm believer that death needs to be a fear and a concern. Not, oh, shit, we're going to wipe and I'm going to have to pay a lot of gold. You died. Your character is freaking dead, man. I mean, sorry. Time to move on. I'm with you on that, Tone. I, I think there, there there should be something that there's a consequence to it, right? There's something mm-hmm. that occurs. If you die, like, you might come back, but there's – you're making some rolls. You're having some level of uh, – 
lasting injury, something, right? Max, something Max Landis did a whole thing about this, about how it ruined comic books when characters didn't stay dead. So you don't want to be in that freaking boat. <laughs> I'm going to throw something out there, though. Because I agree about the impact you need to have, that death needs to have on your players. Players need to fear character death. But I think you can achieve that without any mechanical penalty on death. You could achieve that by the way you talk to your characters about dying, by the way you make it sound important, by the way you get them right there and then maybe let them pull back. You can achieve that level of fear without any of the mechanical penalties in how you describe it, how you talk about it, how you make sure they understand you're willing to kill them at any turn, at any time, and you will not feel bad. Those things engender that fear of death that mm. sometimes having a character actually die and stay dead doesn't. So, you know, I think it's that's a little trick, I think, where you don't need to put in the penalties that can make you someone truly kind of not enjoy the game. If you set it up properly and you've DM'd it in such a way where they just have that natural, you've just instilled that fear latently. Well, so. I got to say, it's a lot like firing somebody. OK, yeah. if you fire somebody <laughs> properly, they should thank you and be like, you know what, sir? I'm sorry. I was a bad. The, I, I'm not a good fit for this company. And that's OK, because I'm going to move on and I'm going to, you know. And it's cool. I appreciate your reference. Thank I'm you. Have a good, a good, I quit, I quit that world. way. Once upon a time. I'm going to pack but up my, my point bags, leave Icewind Dale. Uh, we have by five o'clock. Yeah, but I mean, if you <laughs> die, then you know what? You there should, There's different ways this is handled. Did I walk down the stairs and explode? Okay, well, that sucks. But I mean, if you jump into a crazy pitched battle and you're fighting the fire giant king and you eat a nasty critical and you die... Well, that's a heroic death, folks. That's the way uh, the D20 bounces. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's just that general, like, it's one of those things where I don't feel the need to go around any existing rules to, to make players fear it, though. I think you can have, like, I don't think you need to tone down, like, raise deads. Although, at the same time, I don't throw a lot of priests in there that have them. As I said, we've thrown the one party out there with, no civilization around them whatsoever. Um, no, I had to, my cleric had to crawl his ass up to fifth level where I could finally revivify. <laughs> and when one day he revivifies someone, he will have earned it. On the, other, yeah, hand, right? on the other hand, as I said at the time, now I can kill you and not be a bad person. <laughs> Very true. Very true. I am he happy gave me for three diamonds. I was like, oh wow, he gave me three. You guys are gonna die. <laughs> oh come on! In the earlier editions, death was like getting Twinkies at you know at Wawa. Sometimes you'd be walking yeah. around like, oh, there's a snake. It bit you. Make your saving throw. Oh, you didn't roll a 17 on a d20. Tough shit. You're dead. Okay, well that was fun. Like there was this. <laughs> we they have a, the game has evolved. Yeah. So mm -hmm. much. Where yeah, your characters you to what are, want. You're not walking around with four hit points in the first game. Well, not typically, unless you're Dave's character in my campaign. That's a different situation. I have 29 uh, hit points, thank you very much, at level six, okay? Yeah, 29. At, at now, <laughs> but I mean, I played a wizard once with two hit points at level one. I mean, I mean yeah, let's put that in perspective. At, what, at, at fifth level, a wizard would have maximum 20 hit points in the deck. And the truth is, he probably had something more like maybe 15, level, 10 level or 15 hit points. But as Tony said, the game has changed for that yeah. too, right? So people expected that back then, and they kind of look for that. Nowadays, they're not looking for that. But yeah. if you are playing a low magic campaign, like we were just saying, I think you would have to put in some sort of 
you would be having to change some of the mechanics of things to pull magic to make it more rare, to make it more uh, fantastical. But so this brings us, though, back to the idea of, okay, so we talked a lot about what we consider fun, and then we've gone on a pretty long discussion of, okay, how do we handle certain things to be fun or not fun, and, 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 and how, we, how we pad out different aspects of the game from our philosophies. What makes it not fun to you? Because I'll tell you, the one of the things that makes it not fun to me is when I feel like I need to do a ton of the work and it doesn't, and it just feels like that's my job as the DM because no one's paying me to DM. And, and I really feel strongly DMing should not be a job and you should not, while you do have to use some managerial skills, you should not have to be the tables manager. Yeah. I mean, what do you guys, what, what do you guys think? What, what kind of, what, what kind of takes your fun out of it a little? Well, Glad actually, you know. I gotta say, um, I feel as a DM, I, I'm gonna have to kind of disagree with you on this point. I'm about a half storyteller and half game manager, to be perfectly mm. honest, because, um, the game is really, it's gotta be split. D DM and the players, they have to have the investment. I've been in bad games where I've had some awesome players with me and we are just driving this story but the story sucks let's look at an example like that um the uh the justice league movie a lot of people like that movie okay i was not really a fan why well all the actors were really freaking good they sold it they looked great they even had good chemistry together but the plot was weak and that's not i mean and the movie was all right it was decent enough but it didn't knock it out of the park and you, I mean, you're really going to take that kind of investment in the game and not knock it out of the park. That's kind of underwhelming. Well, but okay. So what makes for a bad story though? Um, I've been in campaigns, a personal experience where you can just tell there is no depth. It, it's like, okay, we're just kind of wandering around or, you know, one of the things that turns people off with homebrew is, and I personally, I've been, you know, you're going to we're going to campaign and look, there's an NPC who's after me, who's literally whipping my ass, who's five times as cool as I am. That's tough. Um, <laughs> I, I remember playing in one Palladium game. Uh, Stop me if I used this in the previous podcast. We were um, it's like, OK, game one. You're, we're working for some organized crime group and they're like, yeah, we want you to bring in this guy. He's super cool. Like, you couldn't be his friggin' squire. Go get him. I'm like, how does this make any friggin' sense? Like, we're gonna find him. He's gonna blow our heads off. But okay, this is what we're doing. We're gonna ask him to come in nicely. And I have another, just, just another quick follow-up there, though. So you mentioned, like, you feel like it's part of your job to be the game manager. On the yep. other hand, though... It sounds like a lot of the things that have made it not fun for you over the years have been things where you've had to be the manager, where you've had to handle player issues that they brought to the table, where you've had to handle the traumatization. So is that a part of the game you actually enjoy or just one you feel like you have to do to play? A little bit of both. I mean, there's times where I would rather spend that managerial energy um, making sure that um, everybody's getting everything they want out of the game. And there's a lot of times, and I know you guys, have, maybe you guys have been there. I'm sure you have, Thorne, I know you have, where it's like, uh, all right, guys, This is here's your options. It's A or B, even C. They're like, nah, no. Or it's like you've got the food, the food critic player where he's like, hmm, I don't know. I feel like the motives here of this NPC are thin at best. Hmm. You know, like we're analyzing all the encounters. Like, hmm, I don't know if I would use that many ogres in this encounter. It's like, do you want to do this? 
by all means, hop up here. Here's the screen. I'll sit back and criticize you for the next eight hours. You know, it's funny because because in hearing you talk, it's a recent game of mine. You know what game I'm talking about, where right. I feel like I can be on both sides of, your, of what you're saying there. On the one hand, I feel like uh, maybe some players felt like the story was, was, was shallow. Although I didn't feel like they engaged with the story to find out what the depth was. And when I threw stuff out there, like they actually had a, um, like Strahd was coming into the picture. Strahd was kind of coming because of other things going on. Strahd was coming into the world and Strahd's whole play was that he was trying to pull it into Barovia because of something on the planet. Um, and I, the players at low level got an interview, got, basically came in to talk to Strahd. Strahd wasn't beating them up. It was a conversation. He's revealing things about the plot. And the players thought that was lame, and they didn't engage with it. So it's like, on the one hand, like I understand the, the plot can be shallow. On the other hand, sometimes I kind of feel like it's just a matter of the players didn't want to go with it. And then what do you do as a DM? That's tough. It's super tough. And uh, when, the, when they don't want to go, you throw something out there. And they're like, mm, not having it. And it's like, well, that's your next four modules. So, I mean, we can either give this a shot or we can start doing some random encounters. Oh, I mean, um, if they can do something else, that's fine. We engage with something else. But it's like, you know, it, it just kind of sometimes it feels like, is it a shallow, is, is the story shallow or are the players just kind of being hypercritical? You know, it's really hard to tell what side of that you're on. It, it's super hard to entertain uh, players that have done a lot of things and they've been around. I mean, I really appreciate the days where I could just, they're like, hey, I'm showing up at your house. Let's game. Okay, give me an hour. And I could sit down, get the monster manual, get the DMG together, start making some notes. And an hour, 45 minutes later, I've got what we're going to do for the next seven, eight hours. And those were good times. Now it's <laughs> like, hmm. But what are their motives? I don't know. Again, it could go either way. Dave? Oh, a couple things there. Uh, several several different things we kind of covered. Um, I think uh, the idea of the game manager um, depends on what we're talking about. With what are we – because one of the biggest jobs of a dungeon master is to manage the game. Um, you're – you like – you are narrating what is happening. The characters tell you what they want to do, and then you narrate back to them what's happening. And then you're controlling what they what they need to roll for certain things and, and all of that. So there is that level of management in terms of just keeping the flow of the story going as a Dungeon Master. Um, I think that's a little different than having to... Uh, I think where Thorne is going with it, where you're having to um, control every single aspect so that they can have fun that they're not invested at all, that they're not giving back to the game. They're not, they're not doing their part, uh, which I think falls into the difference. Uh, Tony, you brought up justice league. I agree with you. Uh, I wanted it to be a lot more than it was. I think there's way too much hate for it. Uh, I think, I think for the record, justice league is not generally considered a good movie. It's, I know. It's considered I know. an age we, of Ultron, not it, not, not an Avengers Endgame. We are, uh, <laughs> we are definitely in the minority here. Um, I don't hate on the DC EU as much. What I will say no, is, all. you know what they should do? Hire the fucking guys who are writing the animated movies. Cause those things are awesome. Uh, well, if we're going to that rabbit hole, <laughs> I mean, first of all, they didn't do the leg room work for that movie at all. And no, then, yeah, I, every time they're just awkward. like, hey, let's just um, let's make a new plot. Let's not use any of the 40 years of existing plots that are fantastic. Nope. Time mm -hmm. for a brand new one. Exactly. Squish for two the hours. Point, 
the thread there that I think is important is the difference between a game versus a script. Okay. Yeah. And I think this goes back to what we were talking about between homebrew and module is that we get this idea that, oh, well, there, the, the, when I watch a movie, they're telling me everything that's happening. I have, I'm completely passive to it. That is not what is happening in a game. So you can still have story and NPCs and even some script. It is going to be affected by what's happening. And if you don't have people that can that can uh, accept both sides of that, you're probably going to have some problems. Yeah. Um, and there's a level of player expectation that needs to be suspended to a point. We need to start, like Tony, you were saying, some of the people you came with forever, they need to be able to, they're playing a game of fireballs and fairies and monsters. They need to be able to suspend their disbelief as well as suspend their critique and invest themselves in the story, like Thorin was saying, so that allow the story, maybe the story is flat, but I didn't just create it. I started the skeleton, and now you guys are putting on muscles and nerves and and all of this, and we're building a body. I give oh. you the skeleton and the framework, but if that's all you look at, well, then that's kind of boring. But oh, that's not my my fault. On the flip side of that, you, I've had I've been in games, and I've also DM'd games where one of the mistakes I've made is I've thrown way too much information out there because I'm like, hey, let me show my players there's depth in my world. And they're like, I'm lost. I'm lost as shit. You do a, you do a <laughs> 10 minute monologue of the last hundred years of the history of the world. I'm players sorry. I pick up a couple things. Like you can't pass more than two or three details on in one monologue. Like players just do not follow it. <laughs> I was influenced heavily by Professor Tolkien and yeah. <laughs> That's how he rolled, unfortunately. If we were You're redoing his book, fifties, uh, different time. No, yeah. but again, that's that's very much back to movie versus script versus game. The book he wrote all that, and when you go back to Tolkien's notes, the dude spent like thirty years. He goes and massive amounts of stuff, making sure that all the timing was correct when the different parties were trying. You know, he had all that, but you're reading the book. He didn't just say, okay, nine dwarves show up at your house and a wizard, what do you do? Because then the store, <laughs> then the game starts. There is no story past that other than Mount Erebor, other than Sauron, other than, other than, other than. Those things are out there, like Thorin says, right? The world is his. Middle Earth is his. I haven't yet gone out there, right? Yeah, like, I mean, because from, from Bilbo's point of view, Nine dwarves and a wizard show up is exactly how the Hobbit starts. Right, right. No, but that's what I'm saying is that who knows what happens after that? I've almost at sometimes I've thought about like literally running a small campaign, like a very short one, but in essence, like redo the Lord of the Rings, right? Like have the party together as it was, but then see what the players do. You know, and the world is still out there. The Nazgul are out there, Sauron's out there, the orcs are out there. But what do they do, right? How do they fuck it up or do even better, right? And it would be interesting because it's that difference between game versus movie or script or book. No but, problem. Because you know, the... <laughs> as Gandalf, I would have the eagles take us right to Mount Doom and we're dropping the ring off and have to drop Gollum and the ring off together as a package. No problem. 
Yeah, many people have said, why didn't we just do that? But you know, Tony Gandalf snuck in, stole the ring from Bilbo, jumped on an eagle, dropped it off of the volcano, came back. Yeah, that's (laughs) awesome. Party with with the dwarves. Although, although, hold on, the ring was the ring was not with Bilbo yet. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm, I'd be totally cool with that. But let's see what happens, right? You turn left and start turning right, you know? But well, yeah, so there's a difference between movie yeah. and script and, and, and the game, you well, know? The game's a, but it's also, and one of the things we're exploring here is that there are different ways DMs approach that difference. Um, I am really, and it's something I think, you know, we talked about it being this episode. I think we're going to get to it in another episode is whose story is this really? Yeah. Because to me, it's the player character's story in my world. So the player characters, I'm, pres- I'm I should be presenting problems. I should be presenting plot lines. I should be presenting things for them to engage with, and then it's the player's story of how they engage with them and what they engage with, and and then what happens because of that. Yeah, I think that's different. It is one of the ways. I mean, me and Tony have different philosophies on this, and just just coming at it from different points of view. Tony, we've talked about the railroad before. Tony's got the you've got the you've got the plot, you've got the story. You're getting him in the story and getting them moving. I mean, do you, is that is there anything you disagree with there, Tony? Not at all, because honestly, especially when you have a very limited time to game. Yeah. I mean, I, I really I want to cover. I mean, I don't have I have an expectation. I want to do X. I want to move the football in my plot plus or minus X. And that doesn't always work out like that, but I at least want to have that framework set up. And if it falls short, for whatever reason, we have some really good role play, no problem. But at the same time, you know, I, I, I've been to games and I know I've said this to you before, Thorne, where it's like, we are okay. So it's like an hour and a half later, have we done anything guys? <laughs> Is it time to leave town? Or we want to go talk to the stable guy one more time. So here's, but I mean, it comes down to now, Dave, you also said that, 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 that really used to the DM's role as manager, part manager of the game. Do you enjoy that part of DMing, though? Um, well, I take it as what it is. So since, you know, as you said, I like the idea the world is my character um, and everything in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's a big thing. And, I, and the players are interacting. With, they start poking at that. I need to be able to... Uh, to control the flow of information while allowing them to, to, to do those things. So there is that level of management of that. So I think it's just the, the nature of being a DM. Uh, I don't mind it. Uh, when I do mind it is when the, the players are not necessarily invested in the game. If I'm getting the sense that they're not involved in the plot, attempting, like, it, interested in their characters, they want to, you know, succeed or do what they want to do, and if I'm not getting that, then it can feel a little more like, why am I, why am I putting it? I love putting in the time, but make, make it worthwhile for me. And the worthwhileness yeah, is when I get that back, that feedback yeah. of like, oh yeah, this, this was really fun. This was, you know, whatever it might be, you know, during the game, after the game, you know. Yeah. And honestly, I'd rather have a player who doesn't even know what a D20 is versus one that I've played a lot. I'm very comfortable with the rules and they're like, nah, you know. Um, they're very uh, lukewarm to what's being introduced. You know, it's kind of, forgive me for bringing this in, but there's an idea that uh, the, the old saying that an Italian woman is either as a Madonna outside and, and, and a whore in the bedroom, like like there's the roles they got to fill. Sometimes it feels like that for the DM. Like you've got to be, you know, you're expected to fill the role of the manager. You're expected to fill the role of the entertainer. You're expected to do these things that are not necessarily fulfilling personally in the game. And I got to tell you, I'm really kind of, 
I'm starting to feel like if you're in a situation where the players aren't that interested in the game and it's kind of being, and that's the problem is that, you know, they, it's a bad, they think it's a bad story or they don't like the way you're pacing it, but it's the way you want to be pacing it or the story you want to tell, you know, in the interest of kind of advice for, 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 for DMs listening, I think you got to consider maybe new players because the whole game can be set up in such a way where everything becomes the DM's fault and it's not. You know, if the players aren't having a good time, I think DMs really need to know and understand that it's not necessarily your fault that they're not having a good time. They may have their own issues. We've talked about, you know, Tony has talked a lot about kind of the players who bring outside issues into the game. We've talked about players who don't, who, you know, the idea that a game can have a bad story. I think as a DM, you do your best, but you also do what you want to do because you have to be telling the story you want to tell. Otherwise, you're not going to have fun. And if you're not having fun, no one's going to have fun. But the, I, I really feel like one of these takeaways has to be, you know, if it's not working, it's not you, you know, or maybe it's maybe it's no one's fault, but maybe you just need a different game group. Because I don't think that you can have fun as a DM if you're constantly also the guy who's to blame for all the problems the players are having in it. I'm going to say yeah. something crazy there. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I wouldn't use this as a really fast option, like just hit the, hit the red button, but... There, are, if you do not feel comfortable changing groups, this is your group you have. Do not be afraid to reboot the campaign, because I've been there. Uh, there's a bunch of problems. One character doesn't like another character. One character has another problem with the backstory of a character. Another character's pissed off about something another character did in the game. Yeah, you know, I'm gonna handle this. New game. Okay. That's, let's put this aside. I'm not saying you're dead. I'm not saying anything. I'm saying maybe one day we'll get back to this. That won't be next week, though. First of all, characters. And let me try to address these players and give them characters so they're not involved. Can I give them characters they're going to like more? Can I bring them back to the table so there's maybe a better fit? Maybe, the, I mean, I'm sorry, I have one player who played a thief and he's like, oh, go gung-ho about it. And three games, four games into it, he's like, I hate this. Now the rogue is absolutely awesome. I think he's crazy, but this is what I was facing at the time. So, all right, you are a fighter. Congratulations. I've now cast you appropriately. Dave, what do you think about that? I agree with you guys. Uh, and we've said this at, at uh, in several different episodes that there are times where certain certain groups just don't work or certain players don't work together or that story doesn't work or your style of DMing because everyone is going to have their way of of interacting with the game. We, you know, we talked about this with like the different types of players. There's also types of DMs and there's nothing wrong with that. Just like some people like Bruce Springsteen and some people like, uh, you know, Miles Davis, you know, they're both amazing, but you're going to interact with them wildly differently. And you can't expect Miles to act like Bruce and Bruce to act like Miles. Um, I thought, I think if, if you guys would, would sit down with all three of us, and we were all running independent games that you were able to sit in, you would enjoy all of them for very different reasons. For very, very different reasons. Because we have a lot of things that are similar, uh, but we have a lot of things that are very different in how we approach the game, how we run it, uh, what we think are important things to hit on as you're hearing tonight, you know? Um, so curate a group. I say this a lot of times, but curate a group you know, there are, you know, put to try to find that perfect group out of all the different groups you might play with, 
unless you're in Tony's situation, like he was saying, and that's your group, and then, you know, figure it out. Have someone else DM for a little bit. Well, you know, that also brings <laughs> if up... If they up, think they could do it so much better, you know? Clearly. That's up another tricky spot, though, because, okay, so you've got this game group, and you decide you yeah. don't want to have this particular person playing. But yeah. now you're dealing with a situation where you're not ostracizing someone in the social group from a game they want to be in, which I got to tell you, I also do not enjoy. <laughs> no, no. And I also don't necessarily agree with either. You know, I, I think if people want to be there, let them be there. And everyone's going to, uh, you know, in the end, we all have to realize that we're playing a game. Like people need to, to, to chillax a little bit about it. You know, it's, you know, some people, their, their competitive natures and stuff come out a bit too, too much. That's um, true. They forget what we're what we're all doing, which, as Thorne said in the beginning, one of the most fun things is sitting down at the table and laughing about this ridiculous thing that you're doing. You know, that's based off nothing. Right. I mean, we're literally <laughs> just inventing this shit. It's amazing. You know, I, I know Thorne ran into this problem with me um, in a different campaign, but sometimes you front, you have players who we're talking about bringing their baggage into this. Maybe they don't feel like they are where they should be in life you know, at the level they are for wherever they you know, prepare their peers. And it's like they feel like they have to win at this game. And if they're not constantly winning all the time, it is extremely frustrating for them. And that's not really how it's supposed to work. But back to what I said a little bit previously, yes, I would say do not be afraid to throw a reboot in a campaign that everybody is kind of having a lot of issues with. I had a friend. She ran games – um constantly and with that i say that i mean every time I'm turning around she's telling me her game is washed and she's rebooting i'm like what are you talking about you just started that game like a week and a half ago how the hell is it freaking washed out well by game three we hit some real problems i'm like facepalm like I, i'm sorry well, and that might be something that's a little bit different that might be on the DM side of things, too, because the way I approach these things always, uh, I agree that there are not everything is the DM's uh, problem. Not everything is the DM's job. None of that. But the way I am and the way I approach most things, and I do the same when, when I'm uh, behind the screen, is I'll always look to what could I have improved upon there? Um I won't put the entire uh, fate of the entire campaign on my shoulders, but I will go, huh, if I had run that this way, or if I had done this instead, or if I had run this type of campaign or if I, whatever, could that have improved it for my next game? You know, but I'm not sitting there crying over spilled milk of, of the last one that didn't necessarily work out. Uh, but I'll always look to myself a little bit. Um, not as much as anxiety ridden as I see some of the, some of the, like the subreddits and the Facebook groups, my God, people are like, they're about to commit seppuku because their campaign didn't go well. You might have shitty players, people. It's very possible. <laughs> yeah. I think that the, that is, I think one of the real takeaways tonight is on the one. Yeah. Well, I guess we women have players listening too. it. If you're a player and most DMs are players too, you know, give your DM a break. It is not the DM's job to make sure you have fun at this game. It's the DM's job to do his best, to do his or her best, to, to, to try to, to try to bring something cool to the table. But it's the player's job to be open and interested and engaged with that world and to explore the idea that DM brought to the table. Yeah. And if you don't feel like you're doing that, well, you know, maybe that's not the right game for you. Um, there is a part of this that is definitely, I think we've all said it at some point now, which is that sometimes 
maybe those aren't the right players. It's not the right player DM fit. And you got to be willing to walk away from it without it being a disaster. You know, you got you got to be able to because DM, it is a game. It shouldn't be something you stress about. It shouldn't be something that's causing you anxiety or depression outside of the game. And if it is, you know, maybe that's just, you know, that, that can be a matter of the group you're playing with and the way that social dynamic is working out. Every game, to some extent, is a social experiment. These are all like fallout shelters from from the game Fallout. And they're all a little they're all a little <laughs> twisted social experiment. Yeah. But they're all a social experiment. And yeah, you know, sometimes that group just doesn't work out for you. Yeah, I can agree more. I can agree more with that. So Let's see. You know, one thing I want to hit before we wrap up here, which is, is the idea of prep time. We've all talked about prep to some extent. How much time do you feel like you prep for an individual session? Like on average. And if it's a range, give it a range. That's very difficult to say. I recommend you prep until you feel confident in the material you're going to discuss. And but if you need you. to do that in an hour, um, am I homebrewing? That's really difficult for me to say because I, mean, I got to put together all my maps, all my encounters, uh, get my treasure together, get my dialogue together, put my beats. I mean, I, I could easily say prep time could be within a range of maybe about five hours yeah, or more, depending upon for one session. Because, you know, I also realized that I'm running a game that could easily run eight hours. And what if we start doing things that I haven't prepared for. Like if I'm going to offer you A and B, I, even if I'm not super prepared for both, I got to be comfortable with both. Yeah. So four to five hours for you. And it can be different as you said, but, uh, but if you're running a mod, if you're running a, a module, is that a little less for you? Depending upon uh, what we're dealing with storm Kings thunder, some parts were much easier. Cause I'm like, okay, you're in the dripping caves. Here's dripping caves. Here's all my monsters. I got a pretty good idea. This is fantastic until you hit a point where you're like, mm, I don't want to do this. And then you're making your own stuff. And I've already thrown a lot of maps in that pack that uh, had nothing to do with the original module. Fortunately, the internet is full of maps. No, I mean, it's a really, um, a lot of the things that did were very in-depth and fantastic. There are some points that are open-ended. Like there's yeah. uh, one part after you uh, save one of the, the towns, they're like, oh, well, you can go to Waterdeep and you can go meet this Archmage. And it's like, uh, okay, time to start putting that together. Dude, did, did we not get to go to Waterdeep? <laughs> dun, dun, dun. We, took, we took a left at Albuquerque. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, it's it's fair, though. It's it's, it's an investment, you know? Uh, what, Dave, what about you? About how much time do you spend preparing for a session? I'd say probably like five to six hours per hour of game time that we're going to play. Probably something like that. No, per I'm hour. completely kidding. I'm completely <laughs> kidding. That's insanity. Um, no, um, I probably around the same. Uh, it's it's hard to say um, because I'll revisit it uh, throughout the week or two weeks until my next session. But I have a very set um, prep way that I do now. Um, I took part of it from uh, – I'm going to give credit where credit's due. I took yeah. part of it from uh, Mark uh, Humes. Um, he has a little thing on, uh, DM one-on-one on YouTube. Uh, he also runs high rollers. Uh, he's over, he's a Brit. Um, and then I'll also, I took from, uh, Mike Shea, uh, the lazy dungeon master, uh, the secrets and clues ideas. I would highly recommend people checking him out. Um, his ideas about secrets and clues will make your job a lot easier, but I have a very set prep thing. I have the setup of the session. I have the secrets and clues that give ideas about the world. Um, and then I have my encounters built up and uh, possible locations that you would hit. 
I build those out, done. I'm done for that session. But I'll revisit that. I have it in a Google Doc, and I'll just open up my phone, and I'll look at it. And, I, you know, I'll change this over. I'll change that. So total time would be hard to calculate. But it's it's several hours. has to be, probably, all told. That should, that should be an article. We should get into, or we should get into that. The, 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 the Dave's, you know, Dave's Google doc and how you organize your campaign. It sounds like that's actually pretty cool. <laughs> it's actually completely ripped off, but I'll be happy to show you all the things I ripped off. We'll go credit. We'll link out, but I mean, let's be honest. I mean, well, you said you ripped it off from two places, right? It's from uh, lazy. Uh, DM, two DM main places. Yeah. I saw, uh, so I think if you look up DM one oh one on YouTube, it's Mark Humes, uh H U L M E S, I think. He goes by Mark Sherlock Humes. Uh he runs High Rollers, which is like a live stream thing. Mm-hmm. Um he had a really cool uh did a did a very quick prep thing that showed how to break it out for the next session. And then uh Mike Shea's work at Sly Flourish, the return of the lazy lazy dungeon master. I think you order the book. It's a little uh, like a little workbook for like 10 bucks. Yeah. It's great stuff, though. It's I mean, he really breaks it out to, you know, don't spend, you know, five hours building out the Wizard's Tower that they're never going to fucking go to. You know, that's <laughs> never happened to me. Spend it doing <laughs> others. That, you know? that is why I am proud. <laughs> that is exactly. Yeah, right. No, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Like, just, just stop already. Don't build the dungeon <laughs> under the elven tree with the treasure that the players are going to decide not to go to that, that adventure. I, I never just took out and then stuck in a folder. I'm like, using that for next campaign. <laughs> and if you, if you do want to, that dungeon that's under, just go get, like, the dungeon of the man-mage. It's a whole fucking city dungeon <laughs> underwater deep or something. Like, go just homebrew that. Like, just kit-bash that, man. Don't yeah. bother with building the dungeon out. Although I don't <laughs> recommend messing with Halister. That's my personal opinion. Don't do it. <laughs> so, oh, is it the Blackstaff? Uh, Halister's the one that's under... Uh, Water deep in the yawning portal. Uh, oh, is that spoilers? He, he is Sorry. Yeah. Alistair <laughs> is the mad mage. I he's think. only been around for like forty years. Spoilers. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's one of the old school. Oh, he's, <laughs> he's not the one. He's not the one whose adventure turns into shooting a movie, is he? No, that was Dungeons of Greyhawk, and that was Morden Caden. <laughs> Morden Caden's movie Madness. You think you've been in a weird module before? That was printed material, guys. You're in for that. Strap. Tell you what, all, all all the younger players hearing down, about that, they'll have zero interest in going to Greyhawk. <laughs> yeah, they're like, well, no wonder they didn't create this supplement for Watsi. Like, we spent the first. No, no, it was a dungeon. It was a dungeon, mm-hmm. and that okay. If you don't know, I haven't mentioned this before. The dungeon of Greyhawk, like the first level is like, hey, this is how you make your character, you get them up to level, you know, one, and then basically it was roughly twelve back-to-back comedy gag levels. It was incredible. Nothing was like ever written by this. And it, oh my god, it, that was incredible. If you've not read this module, you don't. I mean, now, I mean, I don't know how it translates to five E, but it had some great stuff in there. A lot of cultural references from the eighties. Fantastic. Hold on, we can't do those anymore. All the references from the 80s are very dangerous. You should be very careful. A lot, careful of, them. They need a to lot of Star Trek channels. stuff in there. It was fun. It's just good times. Yeah, set up proper filters before you go through this. Yeah, actually, that's probably pretty clean. <laughs> so, uh, but back to the question, as far as, like, uh, how much time we spend prepping. Now, you guys are saying about five or six hours uh, per session. Yeah. I yeah. prep Irritating. more like two or three per session. Yeah. Um, 
But like I said, it tends to be much more once I think through where something's going to go. So, you know, there's prep and there's casual thought time. And sometimes these are hard to separate. That's what I, I was saying. Yeah. Yeah. Because I will be thinking about, okay, so what are they going to do when they get there? What happens next? Where do they go here? And that's all stuff that kind of happens as background process throughout the week. Actual prep is when I sit down, usually in the day or two before the game, and I start doing my monster research, where I'll be going through, like, kind of what are my options at this hit dialogue, at this crit, uh, I'm sorry, CR level, slipping back in a second edition. <laughs> what are the options at, this, at the proper CR level and the proper areas and the kinds of things I might run into, what kinds of themes I want to play with? So that's the kind of prep I tend to do is pulling together those monsters. I am usually running theater of the mind, so I don't do a lot of maps. However, on roll 20, you have to do maps, and I there are definitely times when I'm spending a ton of time looking for maps, which is part of why I'm not such a big fan of roll 20. Um, I mean, roll 20 itself is fine, but like DMing on roll 20, I wind up spending a lot of time doing the kind of thing I don't really want to be spending time doing. Yeah, it um, adds the prep time for, for yeah. having to build maps. Yeah, and I'll, and I'll have days where I just kind of go and just say, oh yeah, that map. I'll just go look for maps and like in like uh, there's there's like map forums and, and and Reddit's and Pinterest and stuff. And oh yeah, you know, I'm subscribed to a bunch of places that are you know promoting that are promoting maps. And there are plenty of times when I'll take a look at those things. Sorry, if, if, uh, my cat just tried to ninja leap onto the table and onto the computer we're recording on. <clears throat> there you go. <laughs> there are plenty of times when I will, uh, you know, I'll, I'll spend time pulling together maps, but then I also f often find no matter what maps I pull together, they're not the maps I wind up needing. So, yeah, you know, it's a little bit, yeah. it's, it, that, that's where being on roll 20 means I'm spending about twice as much time prepping in. Although we're not doing as many encounters because they run a little slower on Roll20 just because of the nature of it. It becomes a little more grindy. So I, I guess I prep more on – and in Roll20, I do less of the what kind of monster do I want to play with prep and more of the, okay, build the map and build the encounter kind of prep. In our live games, I know uh, with the Woodstock Wanderers, we have a player who brings basically dungeon terrain. I describe what they're seeing, and he throws out the dungeon terrain. Yeah. Or together yeah. ahead of time, he sculpts the dungeon terrain because Scott is a very talented – uh, fabricator he actually might do an article for us later or come on later to talk about his his mini and and, and set fabrication techniques they're really cool oh yeah and he's an og gamer too he is he was white yeah. box white box people <laughs> i'm looking so, at players for soda go ahead yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh you gotta see some of the stuff he builds out it's ridiculous and this is the thing like i mean because some some games really consider that the dm's job to bring maps and minis and honestly i do usually bring maps and minis let me tell you how much more fun i have when the players can just do it you know not i mean at, at the woodstock wanderers game we 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 started theater of the mind and we bring minis now in part because scott has these great minis um but i'll bring all the D D minis which i've collected over the years and i'll bring those and throw those out there as needed but i don't worry about building maps you know that kind of thing because that is not to me that's not the rewarding part of being a dm like like i've done cartography over the years of playing i've 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 drawn many a map and it's just not something i want to spend my time on these days so yeah if i don't have to do that two to three hours if i have to do that stuff you know now you're talking like eight hours prep for for, for a four to six hour for well six to 12 hour game we have on occasion gamed over 12 hours especially in the woodstock wanderer <laughs> um but if, it's, if i'm doing it my way and it's running right and it's what i want to and it's kind of the way i want to be doing it it's two to three which is much more manageable and those two to three are much more spent kind of reading up on monsters and stuff i want to throw in it's just kind of the fun part of what stuff do i want to use not so much the okay so let's draw a map which i don't personally get a lot of get a lot of filming out of um so all right, so that's uh, that's kind of how we do it. It sounds like uh, depending on this on kind of how you're how you're playing, you're you're in for a good five hours of prep at the DM. 
I don't know if anyone's getting away without it. With, 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 you know, I can, I, sometimes I do two to three, but as we talked about, it's easy to have to skip up. Um, but in all seriousness, if you are running like a game like on Twitch, let's say, and you're a massively famous, uh, uh, you know, uh, D&D group, uh, you will, uh, Mercer has said he will spend about four hours for every hour of gameplay. I believe it. Yeah. But for what you're doing, I mean, when that's like, you know, when that's your job, then that's what you're going to do, you know? Yeah. And it depends on what you want to do and what kind of level of detail you're putting in there. Um, but at the same time, and I really think this is one of the tricky parts about the rise of uh, the rise of uh, of the podcast and, and kind of the celebrity the gamers. Stuff, yeah. Yeah. Because it paints the DM as someone whose job it is to make everything entertaining. And when you come down to D&D at your own table, I don't think it is necessarily the DM show. I'll put it this way. No. Most of the fun games I've had have not been fun because the DM spent 20 hours prepping for the game. They've been fun because the group was fun and engaged and we came at it with cool ideas. Yeah. That's what makes it fun. Absolutely. And I don't think the DM needs to put it on himself. Even if you do have these great DMs who are broadcasting like Matt Mercer, it's fine to want to be that. But you don't need to be that to have a great game. And I think it's helps to pull that expectation level back a little bit and spread it around the table. Because otherwise, the DM's not having fun. You don't have any game. But as yeah. I've said before, because a lot of people, like you said, the rise of this kind of thing has led to a rise of, of, of fandom uh, for mm -hmm. D&D, too. But I will always caution people when, you know, that's fine to look at these, these people and, and enjoy the shows. But look at who they're playing with, too. These are players that are wildly invested and doing all of the things that... Thorin and Tony and I talked about tonight that make it fun as a DM, that make you want to put in time because they are incredibly invested in building that story with them. So, you know, look to how you can help the DM, look to, so, and, and look to how you can help your players both ways, you know, make it a communal thing. I think prepping for uh, a game is a lot like writing a story. You put as much into it as you need to and nothing more. Um, you could, uh, if you feel you need to spend seven hours prepping, go for it. I just caution, don't go in a wrong direction or invest time in a place that you honestly may not even touch upon because we've been there. Yeah. And if you, do, if you do put the time into it, set it aside and bring it back later. Ooh, it always exists. <laughs> it just exists somewhere else. <laughs> you control where on the map that tower spawns. The wizard's tower is everywhere <laughs> and nowhere. I've moved the counters cross continents. <laughs> yeah, it's Schrodinger's tower. It, it's you know, it's both uh, exists and doesn't exist. It's the open the box. You know, and maybe if they're higher level, okay, well that troll becomes a beholder. We just we just we just we just see our things up. <laughs> Reskin them. <laughs> All right, guys, I think that is, you know, we, we've been talking about this for a little while now. I think we've hit, uh, yeah, just any last thoughts before we sign off here? I think for me, it's just, you know, uh, just, just as we've said, you know, I think the game is everyone's responsibility. I don't think the DM should necessarily take on more feelings of responsibility for it. I think you're a player, too. But at the same time, you know, you, you, you are in a position where you wind up having to play a little bit of manager. So you got to balance that and balance it with your players. So that's, that's my final thoughts. Tony, what do you got? I agree with you there. Um, you just have to um, not be afraid to look at a situation where if a campaign's going south, put it in your head. Where am I hitting the reset button? Um, and then you could do it over and look at uh, how do I recast people? But before that, I mean, I would want to, I mean, before you, hopefully 
you could at the start of this campaign, you get out in front of things, make sure people really have a good idea of the characters they're playing, the environment, make sure that's really where they want to play. Like Dave did. He's like, hey, here's five places. Where do you want to play? And if we turn out, we're like, oh, we don't like Ravenloft. Well, tough freaking crackers. You picked it. <laughs> Dave, what about you? What are your oh, final thoughts there? Oh, Even with something good. good. Yeah, no, I, I'm going to go back to what I originally said, which is I what makes it fun for me is when players are invested and they're they're into the story and they're given back. Um, and then I love uh, I love doing the prep work and stuff. So take on the amount of responsibility prep wise and, and DM wise that you feel comfortable with. Everyone's going to be different. Everyone's going to have level, different levels of management of uh, management in them, you know, that they want to do. Do what you're comfortable with. Help your players have a good game, and players help your DM have, and then everyone can have fun. Love hey, same. guys, it's been, I've had a great time talking. All right, guys. Good deal. Time. And everyone, thank you very much for listening to this episode of Three Wise DMs. You can find all of our episodes as well as our writing on threewisedms.com. We would love to hear from you, so please, if you have any comments on today's episode, any questions, anything you'd like us to cover in future episodes, drop by threewisedms.com to leave us a suggestion or email us at threewisedms at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter as well as Instagram. You can talk with us there, too. You can pick up the podcast anywhere podcasts are served. We're on iTunes, we're on Stitcher, we're on Google, uh, Captivate. So anywhere you get your podcast, you can definitely find Three Wise DMs, and we hope you give us a follow. Mm-hmm.